This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Children's Grandmother by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Now I watched her drinking glass after glass, drinking enough to put any man under the table. The story was chosen by Colm Toybean, the author of the novel Brooklyn and the story collections The Empty Family and Mothers and Sons. Hi, Colm. Hi, Dara. So The New Yorker published about 150 of Sylvia Townsend Warner's stories over 40 years, from the, the 1930s to the 70s. When did you first start reading her? Can you tell us a little bit about her? I don't really know anything about her at all. Um, <laughs> what, what happened is that I, I know exactly where I bought the book. It was yeah. a second-hand book in South King Street in Dublin, certainly 1978 or 1979. And it was a hardback, big book called Best Stories of the New Yorker. So mm-hmm. it was one of those old books. Mm-hmm. And I remember the woman who owned that second-hand bookshop. And I brought it home. I think it had Elizabeth Bishops in the village. It had a story by John right. Updike. And I think towards the end, it had this story that I didn't think you could write. In other words, it really jumped at me, the fact that you could have, you know, this completely gothic story, this story that was so almost strange, so strange that you think, well, it's not part of any universal experience. It's not part of any common experience. And yet every detail, every tone in it seemed to me fresh and new and incredibly interesting. I never forgot it. I would always tell people about it. And I know that my friend Carmen Khalil, who published um, Sylvia Townsend Warner in Virago, I would always say to her, that's a marvellous writer, that's Sylvia Townsend Warner. But the only basis of this was that I thought this story story was a miracle. And it always stayed in my mind as one of those miracle stories. What is it about it that so jumps out at you, that it, that's so exceptional? I suppose the idea that two things are going on all along, that you think it's a story about this event that occurred all these years earlier, and then slowly you realise it's actually about the woman who's telling the story, that she herself is changing and being deeply affected by this atmosphere. So that there, you know, it isn't just the gothic anecdote told mm-hmm. anecdotally. It's underneath that you're getting a sort of voice and an analysis of the situation. Nothing is clear. It is a gnarled story and it's full of (laughs) most gnarled feelings. And then there's a further, as it comes to the very end, one final gnarl, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Last knot. And you realise that that, um, she has an absolute trust, Townsend Warner here, for the reader's full intelligence, that you will be intrigued not by the story, but by the intricacies of the years that follow the story. Now, you mentioned when we first talked about it, you mentioned Jeffrey Eugenides' virgin suicides in connection to this story. And, and obviously, given that this story is also about the, the death of children, there's, there's a content connection. Is there also a style connection for you? I suppose there is in that with the virgin suicides, there's always a comic edge. In other words, you think if someone told you the outline, you say, well, that must be the saddest book. And you say, no, it's actually extremely funny and you must read it. And that that is one of the puzzling aspects of the virgin suicides, how that undertone is held. And so, too, when Sylvia Townsend Warner names these children and how they were all killed, how, you know, Madeline was drowned and the twins and how they died and how the story could be told in London years later at a dinner party. Oh, tell the story of those children all who died. You get a sense that it isn't merely grief stricken, that underneath it, there's some 
edge of dark laughter. So it has that in common with Jeffrey Eugenides. And I'm really interested in this because I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) You can't laugh about misery. (laughs) No, if I put misery in, it's misery. And I long for this. And I wonder how it's done. I keep looking at it. Great. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Colm Toybean reading Sylvia Townsend Warner's story, The Children's Grandmother. Looking westward under the dusky winter skies, which had a russet tinge as though the colour of the Cornish moor were reflected in the low-hanging clouds, one saw along the horizon a band of pale light, and that was the sky above the Atlantic. You say Roses is five miles from the sea, my sister Anne had commented. Why, the children will grow up little sea monsters. You can whisk them there in a moment before the old lady has time to say no. In fact, it was not so easy. The children's grandmother could not imagine the car, a large old daimler, a car for carrying dowagers to court rather than children to the sea, being driven by anyone but Job. Job understood it. We lived at Roses for nearly three years before I was allowed to drive the Daimler to the sea. And even then, Job came too. Job also understood the tides. And as my children's Aunt Madeline had been drowned off the beach where they paddled, I could not gainsay the importance of Job's understanding the tides. By then, I had become so much a piece of life at Roses that I was not sorry to have Job in the back of the car representing, for he was an immensely heavy and solemn old man, the rightful dowager. Graciously rising and sinking, bowing to a non-existent populace at every jolt in the narrow lane, Job accompanied us to the sea and sat down on the flat rock that was called Job's Rock, as other rocks were called the castle, the maiden and the churn, and took out his knitting. He sat on his rock and watched the sea, and his needles clicked and flicked, gathering the wool into socks and scarves and jerseys for the children. And at some mysteriously indicated moment he would cry out in his foghorn bellow that the current was flowing past the churn, that swimmers and paddlers must return to the beach. We obeyed him, knowing that he was our friend. We must have known it by intuition, for he hardly ever spoke, His face was as expressionless as the moon, and his eyes were like two large iron nails driven deep into it and fastened by rust. There were two other coves, both within much the same distance from roses, but we were forbidden to go to them. To reach them, one had to pass through a village called St. Cool, where the children's grandmother said there was always fever. At first, this prohibition was merely a mercy to me and St. Cool a place where I need not be paraded in my widow's dress or repeat the story of the car accident in which my husband had been fatally injured and I scarcely injured at all to listeners whose code of manners spared me no questions and whose loyalty to the old family inscribed very clearly on their severe countenances a loyally unspoken opinion that the wrong one had survived. Their sympathy, naturally enough, went to my husband's mother, who would oversee these conversations almost as a mother 
oversees her child's performance at the dancing class, sternly attentive that I should not omit a single pirouette in the elaborate ritual of courtesy between high and low. As time went on, and I became better trained in these formalities and saw her skilled and scrupulous observance of them, I found that I could not reconcile the ban on St. Cool with the reason she gave for it. Any outbreak of sickness, any sickbed, childbed, deathbed among our poor neighbours became her affair. Not, I think, that she liked doing good, but simply because she could not conceive herself not doing it. No danger or loathsomeness could turn her aside from a purpose. The Daimler swayed and sidled down chaseways and field tracks to carry her and her chest of homeopathic medicines anywhere and everywhere except to St. Cool. Whatever the reason for her ban, it could not be fever, unless the surmise darted upon me and darkened into belief it was from St. Cool that the infection had reached out to Guy and Everard, the twin sons who had died, one at midnight, the other before day, as though they had died in a ballad. No doubt I could have known the truth for the asking, but I could not bring myself to ask. There was something so hysterically ludicrous in the story of this doomed nursery that I dreaded to hear it consecutively told. Such narratives are more tolerable in the city, where indeed there can be a social asset and people dine out on them. Max, Max, tell us that appalling story, that seven little niggers story of the family at Roses. But at Roses, one was a long way from any city. My husband, the last of my mother-in-law's children and born a long interval after the others, was the only one who lived to grow up. His childhood intimidated by the presence, which was also an absence of Madeline, Guy, Everard, Lucas, Alice and Noel. He grew up an only child in the middle of this shadowy band of brothers and sisters who his father and the servants assured him were angels in heaven, who his mother told him were dead. Unable to reconcile a discrepancy, he yet felt himself confronted with a choice between becoming another angel or another dead child at the feet of the white marble angel that showed up so embarrassingly among the wooden and small iron crosses in the village graveyard. Meanwhile, he lived among their vestiges, riding Guy's bicycle, filling the blank pages in Lucas's scrapbook, or giving tea parties under the weeping ash to the dolls of Madeline, Alice and Noel. Twice a year he stood to be measured against the nursery door where their heights were recorded in his mother's handwriting, creeping up among them and through them like a shoot of this year making its way through last year's thicket until at last he surmounted them all and still remained alive. Their initials and his, a C for Charles, were still legible when I came to Rose's with his four fatherless children, and the measuring began again, the children's grandmother writing the new initials and the dates of the 20th century in the same calm, cursive hand. Age for age, the new measurements all fell below the old. She never remarked on it, 
but I suppose that to herself she commented on the stocky, inelegant stature inherited from a mother born of the sturdy middle class. She never remarked on my children's sturdy middle class health either. Beyond a few prohibitions, St. Cool, bathing in the current that drowned Madeline, eating chocolates after teeth had been brushed for bedtime, she had no trace of grandmotherly fuss or grandmotherly fondness. During our first year at Rose's, while I was still capable of town-bred speculation and analysis, I used to wonder if her detachment sprang from a contained and despairing diffidence, if having failed so pitiably to rear her own children, she had made some violent vow not to meddle with mine. Later, seeing her detachment persisting, quite unchanged under her grandchildren's affection, I came to suppose her dislike of her son's marriage perpetuated in a stoical disapproval of the fruits of it for she was completely a stoic. In all the years I lived under her roof, I never heard her utter a regret or an aspiration. And at other times, I had the simple and sentimental thought, she has lost all her children, she dare not love again. In spite of this detachment, or perhaps because of it, her relationship with her grandchildren was as easy as the relationship of sea and seaweed. We think of children as being our dependents. At best, this is only a half-truth. The child is a social tyrant, imposing on its elders an obligation to conform, to be in keeping. And as a rule, the elderly, being on the outermost and most provincial rim of the child's society, transform themselves the most slavishly and climb downward, so to speak, in a headlong flurry to be accepted. The children's grandmother was as equalitarian among my children as though she were another child. She spoke to them, even to the youngest, without a change of voice or manner, and bargained with them in such matters as winding her wool or stripping the gooseberry bushes as sternly as though they were horse-dealers. They in turn bargained with her, and by measuring their wits against hers, came to know her as confidently as Job understood the Daimler and the tides. In spite of her threescore years and ten, she was as active as a hound. It was an extraordinary sight to see them playing hide-and-seek in the orchard, the tall old woman running, with her grey head stooped under the lichen boughs, or folded away in some narrow hiding-place, her eyes blazing with excitement. With a fickleness that matched the fickleness of a child, she would say curtly, that's all, and walk out of the game without a trace of fatigue, for she played to please herself, not them. Even in that most grandmotherly role of storyteller, she retained an egoism of artistry. It was she who chose the stories. It was to her own ear they were addressed, or perhaps to the ghost of her unsurmisable childish self, seated among my children, who listened with critical ease to her narratives, as a cultured audience listens to a first-rate performer. Nothing too much. It is, I believe, a stoic maxim. At any rate, it is a canon of classical performance. 
I never heard her carried away into over-dramatization or false emphasis. Her ghosts appeared without those preliminary warnings, lowered tones that say, here comes the ghost, as stentorianly as the major domo announces his grace, the Duke of so-and-so. The squeals of the little pigs were related, not mimicked. Her bears growled as a matter of course. Listening one evening to the dignified inflections of the wolf grandmother replying to the inquiries of Little Red Riding Hood, I realised that this was, in fact, the lot of my children. They had a wolf grandmother, a being who treated them with detached benignity, who played with them and dismissed them and enjoyed them without scruple, and would, at a pinch, defend them with uncontaminated fury. Her eyes were large, the better to see them with. Her ears long, the better to hear them. Her claws sharp, the better to tear. By an accident of kinship, not them, but the village of St. Cool, the malevolence of the sea, the Jesuitry of the bedtime chocolate. They loved her with an unjaded love, as they love her memory to this day. They throve in her, as they throve in the climate of moor and sea. What she felt for them I could not determine. Unless there is a kind of love that can exist without a breath of tenderness, it was not love. It was too passionate for affection. It had nothing in common with the wistful doting of old age. It had a quality, at once abstract and practical, that made it seem like some deeply felt bargain, as though perhaps she accepted them as the remission of her own tragedy, an indulgence of a maternal feeling that in her own maternity had been deformed by constant blasts of fate, as the thorn trees on the moor were blown out of shape by the wind from the sea. But she never made any move to take them from me or set them against me. Circumstances, my loneliness, my poverty, my husband's perplexing injunction that his children should grow up at roses, all made it easy for her to avenge herself on me for a marriage she had disapproved. But having brought herself to swallow me, she had, it appeared, no further wish than to make a good digestion of me. Once only did I see her exhibit an unequivocal force of feeling, and the exhibition left me baffled as ever as to the nature of the feeling itself. There were vipers on the moor, and Job had taught the children how to handle them safely, since it was too much to expect that they would not handle them at all. The length of a viper lashing below the small brown fist that held it firmly just below the head, the smell of the viaticum chloroform on the wad of cotton wool, and later the stink of a dissection had become familiar to me and not even very alarming. But on this occasion, Paul's hand was still greasy from helping to lubricate the daimler. The viper writhed out of his grasp and fell at Caroline's bare feet and bit her in the toe. For several days she was dangerously ill. During that time, I had a horrible leisure in which to observe my mother-in-law. 
Under her reserve, I saw a wildcat fury at this misadventure, a rage so intense that I was afraid to leave Paul in the same room with her, for it seemed possible that in some self-contained trance of resentment she would turn and rend him to pieces. Her anxiety appeared to have carried her beyond the fact of a child in danger of dying. It was harsh and abstracted, akin to the anxiety of the speculator who has staked everything, future as well as fortune, on a coup and sees the market wavering against him. And when the doctor pronounced Caroline out of danger, she gave vent to a shuddering, astonished as though it were herself who had escaped a mortal peril. While he was still congratulating her, she quitted him to unlock the wine cellar, bringing out bottle after bottle of burgundy rum and sauterne. Standing in the kitchen like some descended Juno, she brewed a vast bowl of punch, from which we must all drink to celebrate Caroline's recovery and the kitchen-maid was sent pelting off to summon the outlying people of the estate, the bailiff, the shepherds, the furs-cutters. It was a cold evening, for though the month was August, a sea-fog was coming in. Fetched out of the chilly dusk into the blazing kitchen, and given mugfuls of punch, the celebrants became very drunk. It was alarming to see the familiar and sombre faces of everyday acquaintance, smeared with looks of vinous beatitude, and though the congratulations they gave me were sincere, I felt as though I were hemmed in by a throng of sheepish satyrs. Perhaps I was a little drunk myself, though I had managed to spill out half my tumbler full. As soon as I could, I got my tipsy children away. I went to sit by Caroline's bed, hearing the shouts and songs of the retiring guests and the hubbub of the household folk still at it in the kitchen. Till this evening I had never seen the children's grandmother anything but abstemious. Now I watched her drinking glass after glass, drinking enough to put any man under the table. I was worried about her, concerned for her credit and for her health. The noise died out at last. But still, she did not come to bed. I had nerved myself to go in search of her when I heard her foot on the stair, the firm, unhurried tread, exactly as usual. She paused at the door, and I thought she would enter. Seized by an unaccountable sense of danger, I stood myself in front of the child's bed as if to protect her. But the door did not open and presently I heard a calm, fragile sound, concluding some train of satisfied thought. The old lady had clicked her tongue against the roof of her mouth, and then the footsteps went evenly on. Apparently my children had inherited her knack for hard drinking. On the morrow they were none the worse for having gone drunk to bed, and clamoured for another occasion for punch, on her 80th birthday, she said, and with wolf-grandmother dexterity boxed back their endeavours to ascertain the happy date. The possibility that she might die before then occurred to none of us. She proceeded through old age as infallibly, as vitally as my children grew 
from childhood to youth. In our small world where she and they moved through time like mowers through a field, siding down the years and leaving them prone behind them, I alone seemed unable to grow older. My middle-aged body showed few changes. My circumstances even enforced on me a sort of retrogression into girlishness. I had my four children and the wedding ring on my finger. Yet when the young chauffeur who came after Job's death persisted in calling me Miss, the error was felt to be natural and even fitting. A newcomer, he rightly discerned and proclaimed the accomplishment of a process that the others had for a long while been inattentively forwarding. Interpolated as a daughter-in-law, I was now a daughter of the house, the faithful, negligible daughter who has never left home. Such daughters are usually scorned by their mothers. Soon after, by reclassification by Martin, the new chauffeur was called Martin. The children's grandmother broke her severe procedure and was rude to me. We were bound on one of our errands of mercy, and Martin, who piqued himself on already knowing his way everywhere, was settling us in the car. High Grange, he said confidently, that's through St. Cool and then left. No, I answered, you turn left at the crossroads and then... Her voice cut through mine. Idiot, she exclaimed, wool-gathering as usual. Martin is perfectly right. Drive through St. Cool, Martin. There is a moment when, still conscious under the anaesthetic, one crosses a frontier between a known and an incalculable world. This is how I felt when the car held on over the crossroads and I saw a landscape typically familiar but in fact strange, unassimilated and raw. And because St. Cool did not immediately start up before us, like some conjurer's castle, I had the impression that we were endlessly going nowhere, or perhaps were dead. Martin, his ears still scarlet with embarrassment, was driving faster than she approved, but she made no move to check him. She sat upright and silent in an Egyptian gravity, clad in her smooth, dark tweed as though in basalt, her hands laid in rigid composure along her thighs. Only an occasional flicker for fingers, disquieting as the undulation that brings the heather root to life as a snake escaped her self-control. She had gratuitously insulted me. I had failed to defend myself and now I was falling back on the private retaliation of pity, pitying her for being so old and for the barren stubbornness that was forcing her to flout a superstition of so many years' observance. The watery sunlight lit up some slate roofs clotted about a narrow church with a slated belfry. I saw her hands relax, very softly, she began to whistle. It was a jigging little tune of a few notes, the sort of tune one learns in the nursery. And Guy, my younger son, would whistle in just the same manner on the way back from the dentist. Absorbed in the whistling soliloquy, she was driven through St. Cool.
the infection of her odd merriment gained on me, and I began to feel meaninglessly merry myself. There, she exclaimed as we left it behind us, so much for St. Cool. Recklessly, dancing to the tune of her whistling, I asked, but what was the fever at St. Cool? What kind of fever? Only young children died of it, she replied. I don't give a rap for it now. Yours have outgrown the danger. You really need not fuss about it any longer. I did not say that it was she, not I, who had laid the ban on St. Cool. I was thinking of a different pearl. It seemed to me that the passage of our unmistakable Daimler had roused unfavourable attention in the slighted village, and that on our return we should very probably be stoned. But at Highgrange she learned that two sons of a fisherman's family had been drowned, and after visiting the bereaved household we went home by a different route. It was on this return journey that Martin ran into a cow, a contributory reason for his dismissal a few weeks later. He did not understand the Daimler, but he understood my true status at Rose's and stayed long enough to see me established in it. I suppose there is an inherent servility in my nature. The barter of an unspoken for an outspoken censure did not seem to me too high a price to pay for the relief of being on easier terms with the children's grandmother, of having some claim on her affection if only as her drudge. It was as though she would at last allow me to live again, after the long years during which I had been compelled to exist merely as a cipher. I took up my new life, and with the departure of my children to their boarding schools, I became almost the unmarried daughter, living at her beck and call, submerged in busy economies that were to pay for the children's education, assenting to her opinions and listening to her stories told with as much spirit as ever and for her own entertainment i had no time for the speculations and ruminations of my cipher days saint cool that dark tower was now the place where we bought sardines and the problem of the reserve and attachment qualifying her love for the children the problem even as to whether she loved them at all, was not even a problem. At first she had disliked us, and gradually her dislike had been overcome. That, and no more, was the explanation. It was not the explanation. I did not arrive at the truth until the day she lay dying, whirled away like a dandelion clock by a brief pleurisy. She had lain for some hours without speaking, and only from time to time stirring her hand. I sat beside her, grieving perhaps, or perhaps grieving that I could not grieve more, and straining my ears for the noise of the car that might bring Paul home from college in time to do his part as the elder male of the family. Becoming aware that I was being looked at, I turned and saw her glance dwelling on me. Her eyes gleamed in their sockets. Her lips were forming painfully into a smile of contempt. She struggled to raise herself. 
and writhed across the bed towards me. Ha, you poor creature, she said, taking hold of my chin in a violent shaking grasp. Ha, you poor luckless creature, you have not lost one of your children, not one. I thought she was raving, but her tone steadied, and there was the force of years of rational consideration in her voice as she continued. So when you are old, you will not have a single child left you, nothing but strangers. Those were the last words she spoke. Then it was the disclosure of her hoarded malice that appalled me. Now I'm appalled for a different reason. I'm beginning to think that her words are coming true. That was Colm Toybean reading The Children's Grandmother by Sylvia Townsend Warner. The story was published in The New Yorker in 1950 and is collected in Winter in the Air and Other Stories, published by Faber and Faber. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Calm, this story leaves me with such mixed feelings about this grandmother, who is essentially on some level quite evil. And on the other hand, I, you know, love the images of her getting so excited playing hide and seek or boozing it up with the staff or, you know, whistling in the car. How do you think we're supposed to respond to her character? I, you know, been teaching creative writing like every writer and the idea that you, you're constantly saying, but you're almost talking to yourself sometimes as much as to the students. You say, could your character do something unusual? Could you give us a next sentence in which if you have somebody old, that person will not behave like somebody old. If you have somebody who should be doing one thing, could you get her to do exactly the opposite? So you think, oh, the old woman whose children died with the grandchildren is distant and strange. No, 
Sylvia Tond and Warner will convincingly create this atmosphere where she plays with them as equals and the daughter or the daughter-in-law is seeing through the window this old woman, you know, flitting among them and doing this for her own amusement. There's a tension held all the time in the story between the next sentence and the previous one where you think, no, no, surely she's going to settle down now and do something, you know, in character. But she behaves out of character throughout. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives the story a sort of jaggedness that I really like. Yeah. Well, we never have a grip on who she is. No. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the final gnarl in the story, this moment on the grandmother's deathbed. How do you interpret that? Oh, that all the years she learned as a way of getting over what had happened to realize that she, they never went away from her, that she had them still somehow. They were still with her. They were frozen at the age in which they died and they were still her children. Yes, but even more gothically that they were still with her somehow mm. and that her daughter-in-law, this common girl, would have a common experience of seeing her children go away. She wouldn't get to keep them in that way that the, the grandmother does. So you think it's about memory? I think it's about how the mind deals with grief the many ways and the strange ways and the unexpected ways over a long period of time that what Townsend Warner is exploring are the unusual avenues of this, where it isn't simple, you know, that they died and that she feels immense grief and then sorrow and she misses them. And she often looks at photographs of them and on their anniversary, she mentions them. Oh, no, 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 no. This is too interesting. What happens instead is that she almost restores them and restores them to her and remembers that they never willingly left her and gives her an extraordinary dark power, a sort of malicious presence Mm -hmm. as she oversees the next generation who are going to be different. So you don't think that she sees her children at all in her grandchildren? Oh, no. I think what Sylvia Townsend Warner also manages to do is to capture the idea that the shock that occurred or whatever happened was so enormous, so great that it destroyed any feelings we could easily name in the old woman. So that everything she does from, for example, watching over the child who might die. And you realise, oh, with the mixture of glee and fear, and then giving the party, but then the sense of her is dangerous almost. Mm-hmm. And the mother um, has to guard her. And also the sense which, you know, you can see Sylvia Townsend Warner working when they went through the village, the forbidden village. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, two children did drown. Mm. And I would have suggested to her that, that no, no, come on. But, <laughs> but it's, you know, in, in the words, she, she is maintaining the idea in this that she's telling a folk tale as much as she's telling a naturalistic story. So you're getting that too, a mm-hmm. sense that, that there is myth involved in mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. as much as there is a sort of realist picture of the English family in decline. Right. Well, there's something very sort of sinister and witch-like about, about the grandmother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is going on with the mother? You know, why, why is she so passive? Why does she give in to the grandmother's control and, you know, real contempt for her? Well, I think um, English writers find that idea of class so fascinating. It never leaves them, even to this day. They're obsessed with the idea that someone or other is from a lesser class than someone. If viewed from Ireland or indeed viewed from the United States, it seems bizarre of them to, to maintain this drama in their country. But so the idea 
presented to us that the son had married someone middle class from a sturdy middle class <laughs> background who is sort of unsuitable and therefore does not have the sort of refined, strange attitudes of this family, A, the ones who died and B, the one who survived, that she's somehow or other plain and that she represents English plainness and therefore is of no interest to the reader who, who, who knows very well that if you have a novel or a short story in which there is a posh person and a plain person, the plain person will be almost of no interest. <laughs> but why do you think she stays on after the children go to school? Why does she live out her years with this, you know, isolated old woman instead of going and starting a new life for herself? Oh, I think that um, in a story you've got to be very careful that you maintain the sort of element of somehow or other that it isn't human motives or what you would do under these conditions is something that you, that you don't even get to consider in this story. Mm. Simply your husband says she must stay, the children must be brought up there and she doesn't have anywhere else to go. And you have to sort of accept that because I think if, if you for one moment start saying, well, what possibly could her husband's will have said to compel mm -hmm. her to do this? So I think you are dealing with a gothic tale or a folk tale in which certain elements of motive really are, are quite different than, than a story you would try and tell which was psychologically truthful or psychologically real. Mm -hmm. In other words, mm -hmm. she brings you into this dark space and gets you by the neck and holds you down in it. One thing I find very interesting is that the mother, you know, the narrator of the story is constantly commenting on how emotionless the grandmother is and how she's unreadable and there's no natural emotion shown. And yet this mother shows no emotion. We get no sense of the husband or the grief of losing the husband or what, what feeling was there in the first place. We get very little even maternal feeling from her. No, I think it's terribly important to leave things out. Yeah. <laughs> and that if you go there with that, she merely finds the telling of the story in the village totally embarrassing and strange as the old woman looks over her. And I think that's another example of Sylvia Townsend Warren thinking, what will the reader expect? Oh, the reader should expect loneliness, nights alone, thinking of him going over the accident. We're not giving them that. They, they can get that on, from somebody else. They, they, <laughs> they can go to some other writer that, you know, Sylvia Townsend Warner probably despised. They can go to Graham Greene for that if they want it. And, um, but what I'm giving them is just one detail only. That it was embarrassing. The death, <laughs> telling the story, being watched over was cringe making and, and embarrassing. And also that the mother does seem frightened and cowed by the old woman. But then on the other hand, which is great, she has a vocabulary, a way of noticing, a way of describing things that's very, very accurate and complex. So she's not a fool in the way that she watches and notices. Despite her middle-classness. Yes, that, that, <laughs> that at least Sylvia Townsend Warner gives her that. There's a sense the old woman doesn't know herself, that the old woman is a set of complex and coiled characteristics that, that don't connect within her. So the daughter-in-law can watch them and in the story slowly make sense of them. But it's a very complex sense mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's dark. And it's unforgiving in its vision, I think, in its, in, in its version of things. How much should we read into the imagery here? I mean, Caroline being bitten by a snake or even that lugubrious servant at the beginning being named Job? I think that in certain stories, you really 
gain an entitlement. I mean, if you're going to call someone Job, you want to be very, very careful. <laughs> and um, Job sitting on his rock with yeah, his knitting. Yeah, with his knitting, you know, and therefore bring in snakes. In other words, go for it and do it. Realise you've won permission to do this, that, that you're inviting the reader into a certain space. And it's almost as though you've got to then say all the ingredients we need in this space have to be gothic, dark and very frightening, a viper and the whole business of the children and, and um, you know, the way they would deal with this. And the but even the outlying servants, the naming of the servants, the Daimler, the whole mm-hmm. the whole sense of wealth and um, land and um you're in Wuthering Heights, yeah. really more than you are in England. Post-war England is really being put back a hundred years, isn't it? Right, right. Except that in the city, but she does say that it's far from the city that they were really. In the isolated. city, they have dinner parties and make like yeah, conversation yeah. about. Oh, with laughter! <laughs> I, I, I used to love that part of the story. I, I used to love it more than I do now. But people in London tell us the story of the family. <laughs> Well, you know, Warner was in her life was very prolific and she she wrote 14 collections of short stories and seven novels, many other things, plays, poems. She's just not very well known, at least not in the U.S. these days. Why do you think she has sort of fallen out of favor? Well, I I think that has happened to a good number of women writers from that time and that you keep meeting people who think that the best novelist of the second part of the century is like someone like Elizabeth Taylor who everyone thinks was a film star, but someone like Carmen Khalil, who was the founder of Virago, will tell you, was a really wonderful, really? you know, English novelist as well. <laughs> I mean, a, a different, a different, uh, I mean, a different Elizabeth yeah. Taylor. But, but in other words, that the two figures who survived were Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene. And you can see the photographs of them. You can see how they functioned in relation to London. They created myths of themselves. We have their letters, their diaries, big biographies of them, more biographies of them. But there, there are these other figures. There is this other tradition that's there that's, that's almost lost, except to certain very discerning or careful readers. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I keep meaning to go back to this. Um, <laughs> Sylvia Townsend Warner's, how many stories did you say? 150 in The yeah. New Yorker. But it is that lovely feeling. I'm, I'm almost 23, 24 years old in a secondhand bookshop that that was the story that jumped at me and that I never forgot. And that um, maybe that's called fame. Thank you so much, Colm. Thank you. Colm Torbean's latest collection of stories is The Empty Family, which was published by Scribner in 2011. You can subscribe to this podcast or download more than 50 previous episodes in the iTunes store. The tablet edition of the magazine with embedded fiction readings is also now available on the Kindle Fire. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.